0: investigation should be relentlessly pursued in every discipline. And tonight we have two men who believe that they do indeed have the truth, and they want to convince you that their philosophy that they embrace with themselves and that they share with others is indeed the right one. And so tonight we have Eddie Tabash and William Craig, and they'll be debating secular humanism Versus Christianity, which one is true? And that is indeed the great debate. Here to introduce tonight's debaters and outline the rules is Pepperdine Debate Coach, Grade 8. Please welcome him. We are here tonight to hear a debate about a controversy that's persisted for centuries, but still extremely relevant today. That debate is Christianity versus secular humanism. Today, tonight, defending Christianity would be Dr. William Craig. Dr. William Craig has two PhDs, one in philosophy, one in theology. He's taught for a number of years, a number of years in Germany, a number of years in Belgium. He's currently a professor of philosophy at the Talbot School of Theology. Dr. Craig has authored over a dozen books on secular theology and philosophy and almost 100 scholarly articles on the issue. Defending secular humanism, I'll leave this Eddie Tomasz. Mr. Tomasz graduated magna cum laude from UCLA and also graduated from Loyola Law School in Los Angeles. He is currently an attorney in private practice in Beverly Hills, and is also a part-time municipal judge for the city of Los Angeles. Mr. Tavish is extremely politically active with the California Democratic Party, and has also run for office for this California State Assembly. In addition to his other activism, Mr. Cobb is the outreach chair for the Los Angeles branch of the Council for Secular Humanism, and he is officially representing that council these times today. The rules for the debate are as follows. Each speaker will have a 20-minute opening statement, which will then be followed by a 10-minute rebuttal, and finally by a 5-minute closing presentation. We ask that you hold your applause and any comments that you would have until the end of the closing presentations. At the end of those closing presentations, there will be a 20-minute question and answer period, and so you might want to think about questions that you would like to ask the speakers during that time period. I will be moderating the debate and I will be keeping time in the debate as well, for the debates. So, if we could have Dr. Craig and Mr. Thomas shake hands, we can get them started. <laughs> Well, let's speak first. Good evening. I want to thank Pepperdine for putting on this debate. Dr. Craig and I are splitting the difference tonight. We are in a Christian university, but in my home area of Malibu, and it's an honor for me to finally get to debate such an eminent Christian apologist. Tonight, I'm going to defend the proposition that the great weight of the evidence in the physical world around us demonstrates that Christianity is not true and that secular humanism is true. Now, in order to prevail in tonight's debate, Dr. Craig must establish that what exists is the God that sends you to hell forever, regardless of how good you are, just for not believing in Jesus. I offered Dr. Craig the opportunity to debate on the topic of whether God exists, and he insisted on defending Christianity. Thus, even if he were able to establish that some generic universal God exists, that would not help him tonight, because he must establish the existence of this partisan Christian God. I want to begin by picking out problems generally with supernatural claims. If I were to tell you that a thousand years ago an ancient warrior was seen by a number of people to divide themselves into three separate but complete replicas of themselves and have all three of those identical selves fight side by side in battle, flying through the air and killing enemy warriors with a beam of light emanating from their eyes you probably would not believe me the main reason you would not believe me is that the scenario I have just described violates the laws of nature as our experience has come to understand those laws. In no context other than my story about the supposed event a long time ago do we ever encounter evidence that such things occur. Similarly, in no context other than the unprovable hearsay of primitive ancient people as set forth in ancient writings the truthfulness of which we cannot even begin to verify do we encounter claims that the supernatural occurrences which undergird Christianity have occurred. Jesus' resurrection from the dead and ascending into heaven has never been a testable or repeatable phenomenon in our world. Further, the claim that our eternal salvation is dependent upon our believing the miraculous stories about Jesus is also an unbelievable assertion. So let the resurrection happen again today, but under verifiable conditions. If such a singularly unique violation of the laws of nature, as we understand such laws, such as Jesus' resurrection from the dead, did occur, and belief in that occurrence is the precondition of our eternal salvation, it is grossly unfair of God to expect us to rely only upon the hearsay of primitive ancient people that such an event as the philosopher James Teller, who I think is a Christian, has written: why should God expect us today to seriously consider something when God would not expect contemporaries of the event to seriously consider it without a miracle? Two thousand years ago, there were none of the sophisticated means of verification that exists today. We contemporary people cannot be reasonably to believe the rantings of primitives in such a superstitious era without more direct evidence. It would be only fair if God would repeat such miraculous events so that we can verify them today. Jesus should come back, be crucified again. This time, his body should lie not in some obscure tomb for three days, but should lie at some scientifically advanced research institution with the greatest scientists observing and examining him to make sure that he is indeed dead. Then, he should resurrect and make an announcement that he will ascend into heaven from the steps of the U.S. Capitol. He should give a couple days' notice of this ascension in order for all the media to have their cameras ready. This way, our networks could announce, Jesus resurrects, at 11. The event would be recorded on film. Thousands would also gather to watch it happen live. After taking to the air, Jesus should also fly by every world capital and visit each of the world's leaders before heading upward toward heaven. In Luke 24, 10, 11, it says that the disciples did not believe the story told by the women who supposedly went to the tomb. John 20, 24, 31 says that the disciple Thomas did not believe the others until he supposedly touched the wounds of the supposedly resurrected Jesus. Now these disciples, who were also Jesus' friends, and friends with each other, allegedly even saw Jesus' supposed miracles. Were all these people such liars that they couldn't even trust each other? So even Jesus' supposed friends and alleged eyewitnesses had trouble believing each other, how can we be blamed 2,000 years later for not believing these ancient people who we really cannot directly know? We, the people of the world today, need to feel such wounds or be given other direct evidence in order to believe something otherwise so preposterous. I will now defend the virtue of Secular Humanism, and by Secular Humanism I mean an approach to analyzing the natural universe by means of scientific examination and by recourse to direct human experience. Secular Humanism is a much more reliable basis than Christianity upon which to build assumptions about the world, because Secular Humanism allows modifications of currently held positions based on further and better evidence. Secular humanism posits that assertions about the physical universe should be changed in light of improved and more compelling evidence. Christianity, on the other hand, is stuck back there some 2,000 years ago and is not capable of altering any of its assertions irrespective of how compelling any new evidence would be. Christianity is based on blind faith and will not yield to even the most probative, compelling evidence if that evidence contradicts Christian doctrine. I will also now explain why morality based upon the God of the Bible is dangerous and inferior to a secular humanist morality. Dr. Craig and others assert that Christianity provides a superior basis for morality than the secular humanism. However, since the Christianity that Dr. Craig defends is a Bible-based religion, we have to look to the behavior of the biblical God to see if that God is moral. In the Bible, God orders the killing of all tribes of people, including the killing of innocent people and innocent children and infants. Um, On June 15th of 1998, in Dr. Craig's debate against Professor Keith Parsons in Dallas, Texas, I heard Dr. Craig say that since God gave life to the people he ordered to be killed in the Bible, it was okay for him to take those lives. It was not God, remember. these people directly, but ordered others to carry out the slaughter. And yet Dr. Craig justified that in his debate with Dr. Parsons. Does this mean that Dr. Craig would justify if some group of believers today started to kill off non-believers claiming that the man from God? If Dr. Craig protests and says he would not justify such killing, why does he justify what the people supposedly acting on God's orders did in biblical times? If Dr. Craig says that God used to order people to kill others in biblical times, but no longer does so, we must ask on what basis can we be sure that God ever gave direct orders to kill off all tribes of people in ancient times, but no longer directs his followers to kill off people today? If Dr. Craig takes this position, it means he is admitting that all sorts of direct communication from God, including direct orders to kill, such as Samuel delivered to King Saul, occurred only during biblical times. This again raises the specter of why we had miracles back then, but we moderns are denied them today. So we can see that secular humanist morals, based on love of humankind, is far superior to morals based on Christian love for the biblical God. In this type of Christian love, it is permissible for people to be killed on God's whim just because he is deemed, this God, to be the creator of all of us. On the secular humanist view, it is not permissible for any person to be killed regardless of whether some powerful invisible force commands it or not. The Bible is so filled with atrocities that we cannot possibly root even any agreed upon objective basis for morality in it. Yet Dr. Craig says that the loftiest of morals have no stable foundation without the God of the Bible. He also repeatedly said, and has said, there is no reliable basis to condemn outrageous like rape in a universe without a Biblical God. Well, as I will later point out, the Biblical God has condoned rape. Yet, if there are such things as objective moral values, no one more egregiously violates those standards than the God of the Bible. The amount and nature of evil in the world also makes the existence of an all-powerful, all-good, all-knowing God highly unlikely. If God is all-powerful, He could certainly have created the world with less evil and less calamity. He could have given us a world that is more of stable, with less floods, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions. If were hurricanes, He could have created a world without tobacco. He could have made the avocado get smaller. If God loves humanity like He's supposed to, then He could certainly lessen the amount of suffering on this earth. The Bible portrays God as a being who can make anything happen that He wants to happen. This is set forth in Isaiah 46.9.11 and Ephesians 1.11. Thus God could figure out a way for humanity to grow and develop without undergoing the enormous amount of suffering we endure. The news is replete with stories of innocent young children killed by stray bullets, innocent young children maimed and butchered all over the world, innocent people maimed and killed by natural disasters, as well as by human fomented people. In his debate against Professor Ted uh, Ted Grange, Dr. Frank argued that some of the most egregious of atrocities have resulted in people coming to know God, and thus the earthly trauma was worth it because it led to eternal salvation. Well, the Holocaust did not result in the surviving Jews coming to know Jesus in any greater numbers, and thus if the Holocaust was meant to be a catalyst to get the traumatized survivors of the concentration camps to come to Jesus, it didn't have such an effect. Being omniscient, couldn't God have seen that this wouldn't work in case of the Jews, and thus spared them the trauma of the Holocaust? If suffering is a warning from God, God should explain how and why and be clear about the warning and what it's for. In a dream or a religious experience, God should say to somebody, You know, I let that straight bullet blow your three-year-old daughter's head off last night because I wanted to send you a message that your inside stock trading deals are completely immoral and totally unfair to your apartments. Or God could reverberate a voice throughout the house of someone and say, your beautiful young spouse has just been drowned in a swimming accident so that you will stop your awful software talking by your treatments, rather than remaining silent. Now, why is Bangladesh, for instance, singled out as a place of such immense suffering rather than Beverly Hills or here in Babylon? Why does one soul get to come to earth in a body in a grand good mansion, and the other soul is consigned to enter the world in a Maha in places like Bangladesh? If you want to say that God is born in countries where Christianity dominates, then why did God allow the greatest and richest oil reserves to be in Saudi Arabia, a country which is hostile to Christianity and even prohibits Christian evangelizing? Some Christians have argued that sometimes evil brings about great human qualities such as the exercise of compassion, but the exercise of compassion would be consistent with far less evil if this all-knowing, omnipotent God had given humans superior empathetic abilities. It has been argued that helping the suffering is a great good and that thus suffering is necessary in order for others to have people to help. But then why are some people located in remote areas or in sometimes very uncomfortable areas in which they are not given adequate opportunity to learn about great suffering, which their intervention might help to ease. My mother, an Auschwitz survivor, was shattered by her experience by being forced to shovel the ashes of her father and brother after they were gassed and burned at Auschwitz. The psychological problems that she developed and her other difficulties were enormous. There were no improvements in her character or willpower from this experience. It only made her weaker more afraid and feeling more hopeless about life. Is someone not going to argue that God had this hidden purpose to make her experience outwards and be so broken afterwards, so that I, her son, after spending most of my childhood, observing her, and hearing about her horrible experiences, would grow up to be a major atheist activist? Is that one of God's hidden purposes? Now, the strong likelihood that death is the end of our conscious existence makes Christianity implausible. Now, it may be nice to someday float through heavenly spheres of great joy, but what we know about the dependence of self-awareness on the physical brain makes the possibility of conscious survival of death highly unlikely. We come to acquire all knowledge through our brains as we go through the tedious process of growing and learning over a span of years. At the age of two weeks old, none of us has the type of conscious self-awareness that we would wish to hold on to for eternity. Thus, if a two-week-old baby or a three-year-old child dies, Does that child suddenly reconstitute in the hereafter as a fully-formed person, speaking a complete language and thinking complete adult thoughts? We know our thoughts and our ideas by the language we speak. That language is learned entirely through sensory input into our brains. If you take a newborn who is completely deaf and completely blind, and further situate that person on a remote island without ever having any human contact other than being fed and housed, in such a way so as to avoid climactic discomforts, that person, regardless of how long he or she lives in such a condition, will never develop any level of consciousness or thought process or understanding that would be even minimally cognizable to us as meaningful awareness. If such a person dies after some seven years in this state, will they appear in the hereafter now able to hear, see, and speak a language in which they can communicate ideas, the same as a person who has had a full life in the physical body with all sensory conduits to the brain completely functioning? Will such a person magically now have a meaningful level of consciousness so as to be able to enjoy the eternity and understand the glory of the afterlife, the same as one of us who have developed our minds in the normal pattern of studying learning by way of sensory input into our brains? If even a blow to the head or Alzheimer's disease can eclipse consciousness, how much more can consciousness be annihilated by the total destruction of the brain? If a two-year-old child is rendered a human vegetable by severe brain damage and exists in that state for 60 years and then dies, does that person all of a sudden appear in full awareness in the hereafter? The same as if that individual had undergone a whole life's experiences. In his debate with Professor Doug Jessup, Dr. Craig said that non-physical entities can influence physical events such as his mind willing his arm to raise, and then he raises his arm. However, Dr. Craig can only raise his arm because his mind is functioning through a physical frame. If he were anesthetized, his mind could not will his arm to raise. So anesthesia can so completely wipe out consciousness, how much more can consciousness be eliminated by the death of the entire body and brain? Dr. Craig has never shown that the things his consciousness can will his body to do would persist in the absence of his physical brain. So for all of the promises of salvation if you only accept Jesus, Christians have never been able to overcome the evidence of the dependence of our consciousness on our brains in order to make a believable argument that we do indeed survive death in some meaningful fashion in the first place. it is an overwhelming evidence, of the dependence of consciousness on the brain, and on the absence of evidence that meaningful self-awareness can exist after the destruction of the entire body-brain complex, or can develop without a fully functioning brain that receives sensory input, we must conclude that the survival intact of meaningful self-awareness beyond the grave is highly unlikely, and therefore Christianity's promise of both eternal salvation for believers and eternal suffering for non-believers is false. Dr. Craig is apparently also an opponent of reason, and he admitted as much in his book Reasonable Faith. There Dr. Craig wrote that essentially the mere faith and the truthfulness of Christianity must take precedence over any evidence. He goes on to write that even if a person is given no reason to believe, and given many persuasive reasons to disbelieve, that person is still damned to not believe in in Christianity. Thus, Dr. Craig, for all of his attempts to bring reason and argument to bear in his public campaign to persuade society that Christianity is true, is actually an opponent of reason and evidence, asserting that reason and evidence cannot be permitted to interfere with an affirmation based upon some subjective inner sensation that he feels he has had that verifies, at least to him, the validity of Christianity. Dr. Craig is in effect saying, because I think I've had a better communication from God that Christianity is true, all other people will be damned unless they adopt Jesus as their Savior, even if those other people are never presented with first reasons to think that Christianity is true. I think Dr. Craig's claim of inner experience is arbitrary. He claims that if you look within, God will somehow communicate to you that Christianity is true and that this communication from God is so unmistakable that you have no excuse for not believing it even if you are never given any other evidence of the truth unless we're Christianity. Well, this raises a major problem of subjectivity. Why should Dr. Craig's sense of what has been communicated to him during his introspection have any greater weight? than any other claim to abide from introspection. Tibetan Buddhist, for instance, meditators and yogis spend much more time in intense, formal introspective practice than do most Christians. Yet the message they seem to get is one of some universal force accessible to anyone who can sufficiently still their mind. Non-Christians of all types, be they followers of other religions, atheists or agnostics, are very often involved in the most sincere study and search for the truth. Yet many of us come to resolutions that differ from each other, but also reject Christianity. Why don't, you know, we don't search with less sincerity to Dr. Craig and his fellow Christians. So why does the Christian God hide himself from all of us when it is within that God's power to give us the experience that Dr. Craig claims he has had? The Christian God is really one vicious trickster. In fact, Dr. Craig is right. He is, that God is a vicious status. It means Buddhists, Muslims, Hindus, Jews, sincere atheists and agnostics will all wind up in hell. Regardless of how sincere our search, questing, and doubt has been. This God, the Christian God, if he experienced, would truly be a sadistic monster making Hitler look like a Boy Scout by comparison. Christianity cannot be true. Secular humanism is true. Thank you. Thank you would please hold your applause. Dr. Craig will now have. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to join my friend Eddie Tabash in debating tonight, secular humanism versus Christianity, which view is true.
1: It's worth underlining the fact that the debate tonight
0: concerns which view is the truth. We're not here to talk about which view I like the best or which view appeals to me the most, but which view is the truth. So, how do we discover truth? The answer is that we must use logical arguments, formulated according to the basic rules of logic which have governed all reasoning since the time of Aristotle. Emotional opinions and colorful rhetoric may move juries, but they are philosophically useless in helping us get truth. Now, in order to answer the question before us this evening, we need to have clear definitions of what we mean by humanism and Christianity. Secular humanism, as defined by the Humanist Manifesto, is distinguished by two doctrines. First, that God does not exist. And secondly, that human beings are the foundation of moral value. Thus, in order to show that humanism is true, and to show that both of these doctrines are true. By Christianity, I mean the view that a personal creator in the universe exists, and has revealed himself decisively in Jesus Christ. We're not here tonight to debate the inerrancy of the Bible, or the immortality of the soul, rather we're here to discover whether or not a personal creator exists, who has decisively revealed himself in Jesus So in tonight's debate, I am prepared to defend two basic contentions. First of all, that there are no good reasons to think that humanism is true. And secondly, there are good reasons to think that Christianity is true. So let's look at that first basic contention together, that there are no good reasons to think that humanism is true. First, is there any good reason to think that atheism is true? Eddie claims that the evil and suffering in the world disprove God. Two things may be said in response to this. First of all, it is generally agreed among philosophers today that there is no demonstrable inconsistency between the existence of God and evil. So long as it is even possible that God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting evil, it follows that God and evil are logically compatible. And it just assumes that if God has such reasons, that these must be evident to us. But clearly, there's no reason to think that that should be true. Secondly, evil actually proves the existence of God. The argument goes like this: Step one, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Many atheists and theists alike concur on this point. In the absence of God, there is no reason to think that human beings are objectively valuable. They're just accidental byproducts of nature which are doomed to extinction individually and collectively in a relatively short time. Moral values are just the byproducts of sociobiological evolution which help to perpetuate the human species in the struggle for survival. To think that we are intrinsically valuable or that human morality is objective, is to be guilty of speciesism, thinking that your own species is the basis of goodness. If some alien beings, as superior to us in intelligence as we are to pigs and cows, were to visit the earth, they would have no reason to regard us as the foundation of moral value any more than we do in pigs and cows. Thus, without God, everything becomes relative. Step two, evil exists. This is the premise furnished by the atheists. Three, therefore, objective moral values exist. Namely, some things are evil. Four, therefore, God exists. If objective moral values cannot exist without God, and objective moral values do exist as is evident from the reality of evil, that it follows logically and inescapably that God exists. Thus far from proving atheism, Eddie has unwittingly given us good grounds tonight to believe that God exists. So, what about that second essential doctrine of humanism, that human beings aren't the foundation of objective moral value? Is there any good reason to think that this is true? Remarkably, in his first speech, Eddie made no attempt to prove that in an atheistic universe, human beings would have intrinsic moral value. Not only has he not proved this, but I think we've already seen good reason to think that it is false. For consider, either God exists, or he does not. Now, if God exists, there's no reason to think that human beings are the basis of objective moral value. Rather, God would be the source human beings are valuable because they're created in the personal image of God. On the other hand, if God does not exist, then as we've seen, there's still no good reason to think that human beings are the basis of objective moral value. Now, since God either exists or he doesn't, it follows logically that there's no good reason to think that human beings are the basis of objective moral value. And thus we've seen two fatal weaknesses. First, there's no good reason to think that atheism is true. And secondly, there's no good reason to think that human beings are the foundation of moral value. And thus, we can conclude my first contention, there's no good reason to think that humanism is true. So now let's turn to my second case of contention, that there are good reasons to think that Christianity is true. I believe that while the evidence is not sufficient to compel belief, The evidence is certainly enough to rationally warrant belief if you are willing to look at it with an open mind and an open heart. Consider that the first essential tenet of Christianity, that a personal creator of the universe exists. Let me present two arguments in support of this conclusion. The first is called the Cosmological Argument. It goes like this, step one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. This premise is highly plausible. It's rooted in the metaphysical principle that something cannot come out of nothing, rather things that begin to exist have causes. Two, the universe began to exist. There is abundant scientific evidence for this premise. According to Stephen Hawking in his most recent book, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. Notice that since the big bang is the creation, not only of all matter and energy, but of physical space and time themselves, it represents an absolute beginning. From these two premises it follows logically, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, from the very nature of the case as the cause of space and time, this cause must be an uncaused, timeless, Changeless and immaterial being of unimaginable power, which created the universe. Moreover, I would argue it must also be personal. For how else could a timeless cause give rise to a temporal effect like the universe? If the cause were an impersonal set of necessary and sufficient conditions, then the cause could never exist without the effect. If the cause were timelessly present, the effect would be timelessly present as well. The only way for the cause to be timeless and for the effect to begin to exist in time is for the cause to be a personal agent who freely chooses to create an effect without any prior determining conditions. And thus we are brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. And thus the cosmological argument makes it plausible to believe that God exists. Let's turn now to the second argument for God's existence, the contingency argument. It goes like this. Step 1. Everything has a reason for its existence. For familiar concrete objects, The reason is usually given in terms of their cause. For example, the reason the Rocky Mountains exist is because of the collision of continental plates, which caused enough upheaval in the Earth's crust. Now, somebody might ask, "Well, but what about abstract objects like mathematical entities, like numbers and sets, and so on? Since these have no causes, what is their reason for existence?" The answer is that such entities are necessary beings. And therefore, their non-existence is impossible. The reason they exist is because they are necessary. And hence, everything which exists, whether it is contingent or necessary, has a reason for its existence. Step two, if the universe has a reason for its existence, then that reason is God. This premise is plausible because, by definition, the universe just is all space-time reality. So if God does not exist, it's hard to see how the universe could have any reason for its existence. There would just be no reason why it exists. It follows, then, that if the universe does have a reason for its existence, that reason must be God. Step 3. The universe is a thing. This is evident in the fact that the universe has many unique properties, a certain temperature, a certain expansion speed, a certain of density, pressure, etc. Now, if the universe is a thing, and everything has a reason for its existence, it follows logically that therefore the universe has a reason for its existence. But we've already seen that if the universe has a reason for its existence, that reason is God. It therefore logically follows the for the existence of the universe is God, whose existence is necessary, not contingent. And thus, the contingency argument also makes it plausible to believe that God exists. Now, what about that second major tenet of Christianity that God has revealed himself decisively in Jesus? Jesus, at least claimed to be the absolute revelation of God, and God vindicated that claim by raising him from the dead. i maintain that by the hypothesis. God raised Jesus from the dead is the best explanation of the historical facts of the case. There are three main historical facts which are recognized today by the majority of New Testament historians writing on this subject that need to be explained. Fact number one, on the Sunday morning following his crucifixion, Jesus killed him was found empty by a group of his women followers. Fact number two, on separate occasions and under different circumstances, various individuals and groups of people saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. Fact number three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. These are the facts. The only question is, how do you best explain them? Naturalistic explanations like, uh, the disciple stole the body, or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The fact is that there just is no plausible, naturalistic explanation of these facts, and therefore it seems to me that the Christian is his rational rights in believing that God raised Jesus from the dead, and he was who he claimed to be. And thus we have good reasons for thinking that God exists, and that he has revealed himself decisively in Jesus, and therefore we have good reasons for thinking Christianity to be true. Now, that raises a couple of important objections to Christianity, namely, first, the doctrine of hell. But before we look at that doctrine, I, or that objection rather, I think it's important that we clearly understand that doctrine, because I think it is misconstrued. The Bible says that God wants everybody to go to heaven. It says, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And that God desires everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. The only reason that God's desire is not fulfilled is because people freely reject God's love and grace and so separate themselves from God forever. They are lost only because they resist God's every effort to save them. Now comes any objection. I think it can be formulated as follows. Step one, if the doctrine of hell is true, God is morally obligated to provide an indubitable revelation of itself to every single person. Step two, God has not done so. Three, therefore the doctrine of hell is not true. Now notice that even in this argument is It doesn't disprove either of those two essential tenets of Christianity. All it disproves at best is the doctrine of hell. So it really doesn't disprove Christianity. But is the argument, in fact, successful? Well, I think not. I think premise one is clearly false. God is not morally obligated to provide an indubitable revelation of himself to every person, for that would destroy human freedom, and make our response to God meaningless. Rather, God is obligated only to provide every person with a sufficient revelation of himself for salvation, and the Bible says that God has done that. It says, ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible nature has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made, so men are without excuse. Moreover, God's Spirit speaks to the heart of every human being, drawing him to God. Jesus said, "When I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself." If someone irreverently refuses to come to God, it is only because he has shut his eyes to the witness of nature and his heart to the witness of God's Spirit. Now, in this word of his objection, faces an even tougher obstacle. For God is morally, or rather, God is not morally obligated to provide a revelation of himself to persons who he knew would freely reject that revelation, since God knew that it wouldn't do any good. But it's possible that God has so providentially ordered the world that anyone who he knew would freely respond to his revelation if they had it, does in fact receive such a revelation. Now, how could Eddie possibly disprove that in sheer speculation? And thus, I think his objection is simply not successful. What about the second objection based on the commands in the Bible to slaughter the Canaanite peoples? Well, this objection can be formulated, I think, as follows. First 1. If God commanded the Israelis to kill all the Canaanites, God would be immortal. 2. God cannot be immoral. Three, therefore, God cannot have commanded the Israelis to kill all the Canaanites. Now, again, even if successful, what does this argument prove? It also proves that the Israelis were mistaken in thinking God so commanded them. In their nationalistic fervor, they went too far. Thus, this argument is really nothing more than just an argument against Biblical inerrancy, which is not an issue under debate tonight. In any case, I think the first premise is false, once again. God does not have the same moral duties that we do. It would be morally wrong if Eddie Tybosh were to pull a dagger from his briefcase and kill me here on the spot. But if God wanted to strike me dead right now, that's wholly within his prerogative. How and when I die is at his discretion. And I think most of us recognize this. That's why, for example, a of capital punishment will say to its defenders, Who do you think you are to play God? Thus God has the liberty to command the Israelis to destroy the Canaanites. The Israelis were acting as his agents, his proxies. It's important to understand this was during a period of Israeli history, when the government was a theocracy. God was the direct command, and this no longer obtains today. It needs only to be added that God never does something without a morally sufficient reason for doing it. In this case, the Israelis did not, in fact, carry out God's command. And as a result, it eventually led to Israel's own apostasy and own destruction by Babylon in 586 B.C. So I think God had good reasons for issuing this command, and thus this objection is just as fallacious as the first. Now, Eddie raises a final objection concerning the immortality of the soul, and I'm simply not going to get into that in tonight's debate, because there are Christians who are not dualists who uh, hold to a form of Christian materialism, anthropologically speaking, and believe that in the uh, resurrection state, the body will be raised to life again. So, some of these same arguments are actually given by Christian philosophers like Peter Pan and Wagon at the University of Notre Dame. I myself am a substance dualist, but as this is an issue which divides Christians, I don't think it needs to be an issue in tonight's debate. So, in conclusion, then, I think we've seen good reasons to think that Christianity is true, and we've not seen any good reasons to think that humanism is true. And for that reason, I count myself enthusiastically a Christian. Each speaker will now have a 10-minute rebuttal. Well, I'm afraid, Doctor Craig, can't have it both ways. He says that the inerrancy of the Bible is not uh, something that we're dealing with tonight. But yes it is, because he believes that the Christian doctrine that he asserts derives from the Bible. He says the Bible says there is only salvation through Jesus. The Bible says God calls people to Him. Well, if the Bible is not infallible, then we can question all phases of the Bible. So that doesn't really work. You can't have it both ways. Now, in terms of, he mentioned the problem of human free will, and that we have a right to accept or reject God. But you see, here's the problem. In his article, By No Other Name, He says that we are so hopelessly corrupt that the only way we human beings can ever find any kind of salvation is not even through our own righteousness, but through the uh, uh, salvific, expiatory sacrifice of Jesus. Well you see the point is, is that if our default mechanism on the computer of our very being is such that we are automatically corrupt and sinful, God could have done it the other way. You know, sinful people still have free will to do good, so basically good people could still have free will to do evil. So God could have made us inclined toward righteousness rather than inclined toward basic sinfulness and still not have uh, and still not ordered our free will. So therefore, there is no excuse for God to have made us with a basic mechanism that inclines toward evil as opposed to inclining toward righteousness, such that regardless of how good we are, unless we believe in something very improbable two thousand years ago, are burnt in hell forever. That is very, very unfair of the biblical God. Now, as far as Dr. Craig's not dealing with the immortality of the soul, yes, that is very much an issue because you see, if Dr. Craig wants us to believe that for all eternity we're going to be in heaven or hell, he better give some way of proving that there is something within us which we can logically and reasonably have certainty will survive death in the first place so we can go on to experience either heaven or hell, and he simply dropped. the Now, as far as moral values is concerned, this is very interesting. Richard Swinburne, the eminent theistic philosopher, has said that if morality is objective, the naturalistic account of it is correct, and morality is based on a set of logically necessary. He said the naturalistic, not the supernaturalistic account. Swinburne goes on to say that torturing children is wrong and remains so whatever commands any person issue. Swinburne, like Dr. Craig, regards God to be a personal entity. Thus, it's unavoidable that even if God ordered the torture of children, it would be wrong. So God's ordering the slaughter of innocent children among the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15 was clearly wrong. You can't have it both ways. Now if Christianity were true, then our own intuitions would originate with God. Now Dr. Craig's article and no other name He admits that he does not like the doctrine of hell and wishes universal salvation were true instead. Well now, just a minute here. If Dr. Craig's moral intuitions originate with God, then we would expect Dr. Craig's moral intuition to support internal hellfire. But that's not the case. Dr. Craig clearly states that he wishes universal salvation were true. So, if it is the moral intuition that motivates Dr. Craig to desire a leniency that the God he worships will not provide, is that moral intuition to essentially disagree with this God something that also stems from God? Did God you in Bill Craig the moral compunction to wish that God were more lenient and that salvation you were know, unified? Universally available? If so, then God is essentially criticizing himself. Thus, by Dr. Craig's own words, he is negating the argument that objective moral standards must be rooted in the Christian God because he has a moral compunction about the way this God is carrying out the process of salvation, and Dr. Craig admits he wishes that all good people were saved, not just Christians. Now, Dr. Craig talked about the beginning of the universe. Now, I agree with Dr. Craig that things which begin to exist in space and time have to have a cause. That is, again, things that begin to exist in, and I emphasize, in space and time. But according to the Big Bang Theory, which Dr. Craig accepts, the beginning of the universe was not preceded by any earlier moments in time. Rather, the beginning of the universe is the very origin of space and time itself. When we speak of cause and effect, the cause always stands in temporal relation to the effect usually preceding the effect in time. However, if time and space does not exist prior to the Big Bang, then we cannot speak about any cause of the Big Bang because there can be no cause and effect if time does not exist. As the late Carl Sagan said, if the Big Bang theory is true, there's nothing for a creator to do. It's like asking what is north of the North Pole. As far as the contingency argument is concerned, Dr. Crank says that everything has to have a reason. But he gave no evidence to show that everything has to have a reason based upon some intelligent design. If there, You see, he's begging the question, because if there is no God, then there is no being that creates some kind of reason. So if there is no God, he can't assume that there is a God just to try to prove it. Uh, if the universe has no omniscient, intelligent, all-knowing, all-good force that started it and continues to sustain it, if it is just a process that doesn't have a personal God behind it, then there is no reason for things to happen. Now, if I drop my pen, it'll hit the ground, and the reason for that is gravity, but that's not a conscious, purposeful design. So Dr. Craig can't say, well, need a reason for everything to happen, so we're going to invent a God. Just like he wants to say, well, I have trouble locating the source of moral values without my biblical God, so I'm going to invent a biblical God to be the receptacle and to house those moral values. Uh, You can't have it both ways. Now, turn to the resurrection. The resurrection is so preposterous that Dr. Craig has been unable to overcome its initial dramatic improbability. Dr. Craig definitely denied that. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And he never refuted my discrediting of the supernatural whatsoever. He suggested that those who deny the resurrection, he's always said, presuppose that miracles are impossible, but that's not my position. They are logically possible, however they are extremely unlikely. There's no reason to say that Jesus' resurrection is more likely than the moon's being actually made of green cheese and the existence of Santa Claus. Now, the historical evidence for the resurrection fielded by Dr. Craig is quite weak. Regarding the empty tomb, even if Jesus' tomb were empty, but that in itself would not show that a supernatural resurre- uh, resurrection took place. There are good reasons, in any event, though, to believe that the empty tomb is anything but a legend. Our earliest source, the 1 Corinthians, does not even mention or even imply an empty tomb. It was not until around 70 AD. The Gospel of Mark was written that we find any reference to an empty tomb. Forty years or so is plenty of time for a mythological legend to develop. Regarding the alleged appearance of the resurrected Jesus, our early source is again 1 Corinthians. Here the Greek word often is translated as appear, but does not necessarily mean physically appear. It can describe either a physical appearance or a non-physical appearance, and there is very good reason to believe that all experience of Jesus as set forth in 1 Corinthians, Paul did not see Jesus at all. All he saw was a bright light and heard a voice. Only in the Gospels written long after what Corinthians do we find any mention of the physical appearance of Jesus in a resurrected state. So this, along with the difficulty of proving a supernatural miracle, renders it highly unlikely that Jesus was seen alive after his death. As you know, in, in Acts twenty six eight it says, "Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead?" Well, my answer to Acts because no one alive has ever seen the dead race. If we knew that one out of every hundred dead people would be resurrected, it would be a different story. But our empirical investigation of the world around us, our logic our discernment doesn't show that. And so in a book enthusiastically endorsed, on its back cover by Dr. Craig, Christian philosopher Stephen T. Davis says, Clearly anyone who wants to argue in favor of belief in the resurrection of Jesus, as I am doing now, must make a powerful case. And Dr. Davis goes on to say, it must be strong enough to overcome the bias that all rational people share against highly unusual and miraculous events. On the same page that this quote begins, Dr. Professor Davis also says, I believe Christians need to recover a sense of the shocking absurdity of the very idea of resurrection. So Dr. Craig endorses, endorses in fact, the writings of the fellow Christian who admits that the very idea of the resurrection is shockingly absurd. So certainly the Christian God is the most vicious status in the universe if he would punish us eternally just because we couldn't bring ourselves to believe something shockingly absurd. If our eternal damnation hangs in the balance, then God owes us more evidence. If we know enough to know that God has made revelation, then God owes us a further revelation to meet the honest intellectual inquiry of our minds. God has been too hidden to justify sending us non believers and other believers to hell. Christianity cannot be true. You know, I still haven't heard any good reason to think that humanism is true. We've heard attacks upon the Bible and against Christianity, but I've not heard any good reason to think, first of all, that atheism is true. Eddie uh, raised the problem of evil, but in the uh, last speech I pointed out that philosophers agree there's no incompatibility between the two, and I also argued that evil actually proves the existence of God, and Eddie didn't respond to either of those rejoinders Secondly, I said there's no good reason to think that human beings are the foundation of moral value. If God exists, he's the foundation. If your God does not exist, then human beings are just animals. And animals don't have morality. If a lion kills a zebra, it doesn't murder it. If a pack of hyenas takes the zebra's carcass from the lion, they take it, but they don't steal it. They're not guilty of theft. And on an atheist view, people are just animals. So this presents a real difficulty for the humanist. How do you justify his set of human values? This uh, question is critical for us in the post-Holocaust age. Peter Haas, in his book, Morality After Auschwitz, The Radical Challenge of the Nazi Ethic, asked the question, how could an entire society have willingly participated in a state-sponsored program of mass torture and genocide for over a decade without any serious opposition? Listen to his answer. He says, far from being contemptuous of ethics, the perpetrators acted in strict conformity with an ethic, which held that, however difficult or unpleasant the task might have been, mass extermination of the Jews and Gypsies was entirely justified. The Holocaust was possible only because a new ethic was in place that did not define the arrest and deportation of Jews as wrong and, in fact, defined it as ethically tolerable and even good. Paz goes on to point out that because of its internal coherence and consistency, the Nazi ethic could not be discredited from the So how does the secular humanist propose to show the Nazis that they were wrong? You can't find moral values in a test tube. Without a transcendent anchor point for your moral values, you are lost in socio-cultural relativism. And there's simply no way to be able to consistently condemn the values of National Socialist Germany in favor of the values of the Western democracies if God doesn't exist, I think we're basically left, as Nietzsche said, with nihilism, the destruction of all me, in Babylon life, we're certainly not left with humanism. So we've not seen any good reason to become a humanist tonight. Now, are there good reasons to think that Christianity is true? Well, I first presented two arguments for the existence of God. First, the cosmological argument whatever begins to exist has a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe has a cause. And he did not dispute, in fact he affirmed the second premise that the universe began to exist, but he disputes the first premise that whatever begins to exist has a cause. He says this is only true of things in space and time, but not of the universe as a whole. I think that's a gratuitous exception that he wants to make. The principle of causality is not a natural physical law that would be different if physical parameters were different. It is a metaphysical principle that is true in all possible worlds, that something can't come out of nothing, being cannot come from non-being. And honestly, folks, if the alternative to theism tonight is to believe that the whole universe just popped into being uncaused out of nothing, Then I say, let the atheist take that view, because nothing, I think, requires more faith than that. Now, Eddie also says, Causes have to exist prior to their effects, and there is no priority temporal to the Big Bang singularity. No, causes do not have to be prior to their effects. Causes can be simultaneous with their effects. For example, a heavy ball resting on a cushion, being a cause of the depression in the cushion. They could exist forever like that, And you would have a simultaneity of cause and effect. So I think that he's utterly uh, failed to refute the first argument that I gave. I think it makes it plausible that there is a creator of the universe. What about the contingency argument? Remember, it went like this. Everything has a reason for its existence. If the universe has a reason, then that reason is God. And thirdly, the universe is a thing. And from that it follows that the universe has God as its reason. And it says this is question-making because there's no reason to think there is an intelligent designer. Well, I'm not arguing there's an intelligent designer. What I'm simply saying is that when we look around the world and we think about things philosophically, we see that things have reasons why they exist. They're either contingent, in which case they have causes, or they're necessary in their existence, in which case they exist necessarily. Now, imagine you're walking on the beach and you found a large translucent globe lying there. You would surely say,
1: where did this come from? Why
0: does this exist? Well, suppose the globe were a little bit bigger, suppose it were the size of a house, you'd still wonder why it was there, where it came from. Suppose it were as big as the United States. The size wouldn't make any difference. You'd still say, why does it exist? Suppose it was the size of a galaxy. The question would still remain, suppose it were the size of the universe. You would still say, why does this such a thing exist? So it seems to me that first premise is certainly plausible, more plausible than it's contradictory. And from that it follows, therefore, that God must exist as a necessary being and the reason for the existence of the universe. I then turn to reasons to believe that Jesus is the decisive revelation of God. And here A repudiated this whole approach by saying that the initial improbability of the resurrection is so great it cannot be overcome. Extraordinary events require extraordinary evidence. Let me say two things about this. First of all, this commonsensical slogan is demonstrably false. How do theorists from Condorcet to John Stuart Mill discuss thoroughly what sort of evidence you have to have in order to establish the occurrence of a highly improbable event? And what they realized is that you cannot simply hold that extraordinary events require extraordinary evidence, because then you would never believe the report on last night's news of a winning pick in the lottery, because that's an extraordinarily improbable event, which would be absurd. Rather, what probability there is found is that you must also consider the probability that if the event did not occur, then the evidence would be just as it is. In the case of the resurrection, this is the probability that if there were no resurrection, that we would have an empty tomb, resurrection appearances, the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. And that, uh, I think, is so improbable that it can counterbalance any intrinsic improbability that you might think lies in the resurrection itself. The second point though I want to make about this is that the resurrection is not improbable intrinsically. What is improbable is the hypothesis that Jesus wrote naturally from the dead. That is incredibly improbable, but the Christian agrees that, that is not likely to have happened. The hypothesis is God raised Jesus from the dead. And given the existence of God established by the cosmological the contingency and the argument from evil that Eddie didn't review, uh, we have good reasons to believe that God exists. So this is not intrinsically improbably bad. I I'm showed sure that most scholars today believe in the historicity of the empty tomb He's right, it isn't mentioned in Paul explicitly, but it is implied in Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. And moreover, it's mentioned in a pre-marked passion story, which goes back within the first few years after Jesus' death. So the fact is the most New Testament critics, accept the historicity of the empty tomb. With respect to the post mortem appearances, again, he's correct that the Greek word old faith does not indicate whether these are physical or non-physical appearances. It just means that Jesus appeared. Paul's experience on the Damascus Road was unusual because it was a post-Ascension encounter. And thus Paul says, he appeared to me as one born out of time uh, because Christ had already ascended. And he didn't even speak to the problem. Of the origin of the disciples' belief in the resurrection it was utterly improbable that they would have come up with this given their Jewish thought frame. Notice he provides no alternative explanation and that's in line with uh, contemporary scholarship. Contemporary scholarship recognizes no alternative explanation to the, uh, these facts other than the resurrection of Jesus. Now, what about any objections to Christianity, such as the doctrine of hell? I want to re emphasize biblical inerrancy is not the issue tonight because many Christians don't accept biblical inerrancy. What we're dealing with, are those essential facts not established by evidence. He says, but look, God could have made me more inclined to accept the truth. I would argue, number one, that God overcomes this by His prevenient grace my proclivity to turn away from Him. And then secondly, there is no guarantee that in a world such as education, that the balance between saved and lost would be any better than it is in this world. He says, but Craig wishes universal salvation were true. And I say God wishes it as well. It is only because of the free will of human beings that universal salvation is not true. And thus I think this provides no substantive uh, objection to the Christian faith. Well, Dr. Craig says so biblical inerrancy is not an issue. Fine. Biblical inerrancy is not an issue. Let's take the Bible as possibly wrong, and that the doctrine of hell is wrong, and that no good, Jesus-loving God was sending to hell forever for not believing in Jesus. Notice that Dr. Craig never responded to my points about the supernatural generally. Let me read what Thomas Jefferson uh, third president of the United States once wrote to John Adams, the second president of the United States. And the day will come of the mystical generation of Jesus by the Supreme Being as his father in the womb of a virgin will be classed with the fable of the generation of Minerva in the brain of Jupiter. You see, our third president of the United States was worried about supernatural claims that are unprovable. Now, Dr. Craig says that there is no reason to reject these supernatural claims if you have God. As the factor making them come about. Okay, well then my claim that I arrived here tonight on a built flying saucer is implausible until I tell you that God gave me that flying saucer directly. Does that add anything? Of course not. Well, that's no difference than Dr. Craig's position. Now, with respect to uh, this concept of. The heavy bowling ball resting on a cushion being simultaneous causation so that the cause could have happened and cause an effect. Remember, when that bowling ball presses in on that cushion, it's pressing in precedes the indentation. The indentation goes along with the bowling ball. The cushion doesn't see the bowling ball come and say, okay, this is heavy, I'm going to indent before it gets here. So when we speak logically about cause and effect, we are always talking, if we are speaking logically, about a cause that precedes its effect in time. And since there was no time and space before the Big Bang, uh, we are simply saying what's north of the North Pole? Now Dr. Craig assumes that it would be preposterous for something to pop into existence out of nothing, well where does Dr. Frank's invisible God pop into existing out of nothing? But you see, what he does is he says, okay, because this is God, that he is exempt from causation. He is exempt from the laws of cause and effect. But then, he's just making up an excuse so he can avoid the laws of cause and effect, which he says otherwise obtained, so he can have an excuse for his God to remain uncaused. But that doesn't solve the problem. Now, with respect to the, the uh, question of uh, the resurrection being so unusual regarding Jewish thought that it was such a paradigm shift that something supernatural had to happen, that is not evidence of the supernatural. If I were able to convince Dr. Craig or some other Christian that reincarnation is true, that would not make it true. If tomorrow morning you saw Dr. Craig at the L.A. airport singing Hare Krishna, handing out books of the Bhagavad Gita, that doesn't mean that the Hare Krishna would become true, even though that's a major paradigm shift. So you can have major paradigm shifts explainable without uh, uh, without recourse to the supernatural. Now, as far as objective moral values is concerned, Dr. Craig always says that we cannot have an objective basis for condemning rape without the biblical God, I think it's time for Bill Greg to have a talk with his God, because that God condones rape. In Deuteronomy 2014, it is ordered that God's people take the women, children, and cattle of conquered territory that this spoils the spoils of war, which spoils our gift for God. In Numbers 31.18, Moses, with God's approval, orders his men to take for themselves very young girls if they are virgins, and they are called women children, so we've got a God who's a child molester. God is more than happy to reward Moses for this by urging him to distribute the spoils. Also, rape is never considered wrong with respect to the woman. In Deuteronomy 22, 28, uh, 29, if, if a woman is raped by an unbeatable person, is raped, she's forced to marry the man who raped her. I mean, this is absolutely preposterous. Also, Jesus had a problem with his prophecies. In Matthew 24.34 and Mark 13.30, he says that the generation of listeners now hearing his words will still be alive at his second coming. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian uh, theologian, wrote that these passages are most embarrassing in the Bible and show ignorance on the part of Jesus. We're still waiting for Jesus to come back. And also, uh, we have a problem with the generation of Jesus. In the book of Matthew, it says that Joseph, husband of Mary, had one father named Kelly, and another gospel that says his name was Jacob. Joseph couldn't have had two fathers. So you see, what we have here is unprovable mythology which does not contradict the value of secular humanism, which is based on evidence of the empirical universe, and that is why secular humanism is true, because it looks to the evidence In my closing speech, let me attempt to draw the threads of the debate together this evening. First of all, I argue that there's no good reason to think that humanism is true. We saw, first of all, that the humanist is committed to the position that God does not exist. And we haven't heard any good uh, argument for that tonight. We first heard about the presentation of the problem of evil, but after I responded to that, that dropped out of the debate this evening. Secondly, I argue that there are no good reasons to think that human beings are the foundation of moral value. If God exists, he's the foundation of moral value. If God does not exist, there's no reason that human beings have value. They're just animals, and thus humanism is an absurd thing mean, with faith. It's a faith predicament the intrinsic value of human beings in an atheistic universe. And honestly, folks, I just don't see any reason to think that faith commitment is true. Now here, he Eddie begins begins, again, later in uh, Biblical trivia, he says God commands rape. And that is utterly not true. That is taken out of context. What what those passages are talking about, is taking uh, these women whose husbands have been slain as lies is to protect them because in that day and age widows have no means of support or sustenance. So this is actually expression of God's mercy. It is not a matter of commanding the So I think he's just simply missed the philosophical argument here, which is that humanist has to give us some reason to think that human beings are objectively valuable in the non world and that he hasn't done it. Now, secondly, have to seen some good reasons that Christianity is true. First of all, we've seen arguments, really three, you count the argument from evil, for the existence of God. First, the cosmological argument. Here, Eddie reduces his argument now to simply saying that when the bowling ball rests on the cushion, it first presses in, and then the cushion goes down. Now, I'm talking about that the bowling ball has been resting on the cushion, said, from eternity. The cause and effect are simultaneous. I think of links in a chain, one supporting the other, the causation is simultaneous. Similarly, the cause of the origin of the universe is simultaneous with the creation of the universe. And he says, But you're making God pop into existence. Obviously not. I said he's a timeless, uncaused, necessary being. And he says, well, then he's an exception to the causal principle. No, the causal principle is whatever begins to exist as a cause, something cannot come into existence out of nothing. So God isn't an exception to the principle, rather the principle simply doesn't apply to God because God never began to exist. What about the contingency argument? Well, I argue here that if everything has a reason for its existence and the universe is a thing, the universe must have a reason for its existence, and he did not refute the argument. So we've got good grounds for thinking God exists. What about that final point that Jesus Christ is to the decisive revelation of God? I argue that it is a false principle to think that extraordinary events require extraordinary evidence. And also, that the resurrection is not intrinsically problem. And he said, but look, then I could say I came to find an artifact, sponsor. Sure, you could say that. But what is the evidence for that? In the case of the resurrection, I'm not just saying that's what the Bible says. I'm saying the majority of the New Testament scholars today agree that there's a empirical evidence for this. The empty tomb." The post mortem appearances, the origin of the disciples' faith. And you've got to give us some kind of explanation of those facts, and none's been forthcoming in the debate this evening. So it seems to me that it's very evident where the weight of the evidence lies. It lies on the side of Christianity. Now, I expect there are probably three broad groups of people here tonight. Many of you are Christians and, and you don't need say. Many of you are. Humanists are atheists and have come to see any Mae mince me that tonight. And I believe that I can convince you that you're committed by faith, to faith, the humanism. But I think many of you probably tonight are seekers, what I would call, spiritual seekers looking to find God as a reality in your life. And I would just invite you to do what I did. I was raised in a Christian home and family, but when I was a teenager I began to ask the big questions in life. And in the search for answers I began to read the New Testament. And as I did, I found there was an authenticity about this man, Jesus of Nazareth, a written truth about his words that I couldn't deny. And to make a long story short, after about six months of the most intense soul searching, I just yielded my life to God and experienced a sort of spiritual rebirth of him. God became a, a living reality in my life, the reality I walked with for the last 30 years. And I encourage you to do the same thing that I did. Pick up a New Testament, begin to read the Gospels. And asking this couldn't be true, I believe it could change your life, just as it changed mine. We will now have a 20-minute question and answer period. Anyone who is interested in asking questions, you will stand in line behind one of the two mics here. You address, and then have one minute to answer the question, and then the other person will have a minute to respond to that question. And so we'll start with this mic here. If he you would address the question, I have a question for you doctor. If as humans, we have a right to expect from an all power all-powerful God an unambiguous blueprint for salvation, as opposed to direct proof for salvation, you're saying? How? of the Bible as allowing millions, if not billions, of sincere, decent, honest seekers, the confusion that would allow people such as Gandhi to suffer in hell forever, or a mere mistake, an infinite punishment for a finite creature. And the second part of that would be: could you please explain how anybody's benefits from eternal punishments? After all is done and said, that there's no chance of redemption, it's purely revenge. I don't, Is this on? Uh, I think I dealt with that question in the debate tonight. That was one of Eddie's main points. First of all, I said that's not an essential doctrine of Christianity, and, uh, and therefore that's not really an issue for the debate this evening. But secondly, I said that I think God simply has to give a sufficient revelation of himself. And the Bible says that he's done that. I believe that any sincere inquirer after the truth will come to know God in a personal way. And I would also say that it's very possible that God so providentially ordered the world, that all those who would freely respond to this love and grace, if they were to hear about it, are born at times and places in history where they do hear about it. So as long as that's even possible, I think it shows that there's no incompatibility here. of the Bible is something he doesn't want to get into tonight. So since he has left open the possibility that it's not infallible, let me just say that I believe that the Bible is fallible, and it is a horrible mistake of the Bible to say that regardless of how good you are, you go to hell forever. I know a lot of sincere atheists and agnostics, and Tibetan Buddhists, and others will look very intently, including me, over a lifetime to try to find the truth. And I never got the internal message that unless I accept Jesus, I'm going to go to hell forever. Now, my mother, the Auschwitz survivor, gave up completely on life afterwards. She felt that all forms of religion, particularly Christianity, were very offensive. So she's now burning in hell. So it means that if ever had accepted Jesus a little before dying, he'd be in heaven. And now my mother and other Auschwitz survivors uh, would be in in hell. This is a ludicrous uh, doctrine that stands on nothing whatsoever. Next question. So Dr. Clare. We are told that the. How are we supposed to have a question? Sure.
1: sure. Uh, that
0: sounds good. Uh, then does someone have a question for Dr. Clare? Um, Mr. Foss, I have a question for you. Dr. Gray is able to give us evidence based on the doctor. we hear evidence of your doctrine of humanism. Well, you see, Dr. Gregg, with all due respect, didn't give us evidence. He gave us hearsay claims which are supposed to overcome the supernatural, and what I did was the evidence I gave was the evidence that we used to determine everything else in our lives, the same evidence where through our sensory perceptions and scientific investigation and common understanding, we come to know that something is what it is. the same evidence that lets you know that the ocean is over there and the mountain is over here or that is on the sun is out, or that it's raining. But you see what Dr. Craig is trying to say is that with no direct evidence we are supposed to believe something entirely supernatural which is not repeatable or testable today. Dr. Craig never said, well let me take you down to this floor and I'll show you ten people who resurrect and you'll see them float up into heaven to show that it's possible. So all he has done essentially is to show us something based on blind faith that happened 2,000 years ago, with no direct proof. Mr. Thomas, have you ever seen an I'm sorry, I'm going to ask you Oh, okay. Okay, okay, I'm sorry. Okay. Well, I think you recognize when you're listening here, but that's not at all what I did. We have three arguments for the existence of God. One for the evil, one for the cosmological argument, and one for the contingency if you're going to deny the conclusion of those arguments, you've got to deny one of the premises, otherwise, the conclusion follows logically. On the contrary, Eddy couldn't give an argument, a scientific argument, for, a, uh, for atheism or humanism, because humanism is a value judgment. It's a value judgment about the intrinsic order of human beings. And you can't prove value judgments by scientific evidence. There cannot be scientific evidence for a value judgment, and thus humanism is internally self-contradictory. It says only believe what you can prove by scientific evidence, but then it, in itself is a belief in a value judgment about human beings, not based on scientific evidence. So it's internally self Yes, Doctor yes, Craig. Yes, Craig. We are told that the Judeo-Christian God is a spirit, and we are made in His image. And why are you all invisible? Well, I think when it says that we are made in the image of God, this means, for one thing, that uh, man is God's representative on earth. As God is sovereign over the universe, so God has placed man on earth to be the steward and the caretaker for, for this earth. Uh, in a more philosophical sense, I think it means that we are created in God's image in the sense that we are persons, and in that sense we stand apart from all the rest of creation, and that we are self-conscious persons endowed in with intellect, emotions, and will, and thus can we have a personal relationship with God. So I think that's what's meant when it talks about being created in the personal image of God. And that is, by the way, why we more as human beings. We're not just animals. Well, certainly, if we're made in the image of God, and God is an incorporeal being, and God doesn't have a physical mind, then a physical brain, we shouldn't have to have physical brains in order to have consciousness. So, I think that's a very serious problem. Now, if God, of course. Is the focal point of these moral values. You've got a pretty vicious God. In the book of Numbers, in the Bible, it orders somebody killed just for picking up sticks on the Sabbath. God orders uh, two homosexuals who share a consensual love with each other to be put to death. Uh, I don't want to have that kind of moral values imposed on me by such a bloodthirsty creature. Also, Dr. Craig still hasn't answered why these great evidentiary supernatural events occurred. Thousands of years ago, we moderns don't get a chance to see them today. All the responses look within. Well, I look within, and I look within, and I don't get the same thing Dr. Craig does. Why is his introspection superior to my introspection? Why is his internal message of God um, uh, better than my internal message that there is no supernatural faith? Do you have a question for Mr. Arch? Yes, I yes. First, a statement, and then a question. My statement, I'm I think that this is an issue a lot of it on The morality issue is relativism. And the problem that we're dealing with here is whose morality we're placing ourselves against. If there is uh, an eternal God who is completely moral and completely correct then according to Isaiah 64, our right to Times, whenever we're up against something we don't understand, we're not as good as, we become afraid. And this is a very personal question for introspection or for, uh, for sharing. Are you afraid of God? Are you afraid of hell? Are you afraid of your own analysis? Because we all have it. I'm not afraid of God, I'm not afraid of hell because these things are so preposterous I don't believe they exist. Now, if God wants me to believe in Him, I think he owes me more. God says, you know what, hey, I'm going to send you to the barbecue room with all eternity, unless you believe in me, he's got to give me evidence. So far, I've seen God say things like, the man should rule over the woman. Let's say the woman is more intelligent. Genesis 3.16 doesn't allow for that. In the book of Thessalonians, it says that the woman should speak in the church and ask her husband. So you have the Bible imposing all inferiorities on women, and there's no external justification for claiming that women should be subordinate to men. And then you have God ordering these people to be killed, and with these ridiculous laws, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. So some poor woman is practicing some witchcraft you're supposed to take her out and execute her. I mean, this is a bloodthirsty God, and if he caps it off by sending good people to hell forever, I don't want to know this creature. He is a demon. I think that answer made definite exactly what he wants and he doesn't want this kind of God. He doesn't want to believe in a sort of God. So it's not a matter for I think that you have evidence and argument. It's a matter of the will that this is a God things who wants nothing to do. And God will say to you, if that is your desire, all oh, I'm you'll be judged. As I said in one sense, I don't believe God sends anybody to hell. God wants every person to be saved, and He tries to draw every person to Himself and to save every person. And the only reason people are lost is because they don't want okay. and They believe God and they, they reject Him. So, really, hell is a human creation. It's not. It's not something that God wants. Good question, Dr. Craig. I'll ask a good question to Dr. Craig. Dr. Craig, you said, without a we have no special status over the other animals, would, would you agree that, if in fact no God exists, that the tenets and methods of humanism are nonetheless noble pursuits, include of any meaning derived from outside ourselves? Yes, I, I would agree that the tenets and the goals of humanism are noble pursuits. Yes. And what times are doing tonight is I'm not arguing against yes, those goals or those Desires. But on the contrary, what I want to offer you is a foundation for those desires. Not that we share the same beliefs that in one sense. We believe in the intrinsic dignity of human beings, in intrinsic human rights, in uh, the fellowship of humanity. But what I'm arguing is that apart from a transcendent foundation of those, we have no basis for criticizing the National Socialist Germany or the apartheid. South Africa, or the genocide that goes on in Cambodia, or in Bosnia. So it's not that the the pursuits and the goals of humanism that I disagree with. I agree with those said, We need to have a foundation in our philosophy the apply for a common those values to be the held here. Well, Dr. Kway said a few minutes ago that God tries to draw every person to himself. All I can say is, boy, is this one opera God's. My mother through Auschwitz have her go through these horrible experiences which kills her ability to have any enjoyment in life she thinks that all religion is ludicrous and then the moment she dies, that's his sister who thought Auschwitz was tough wait, you see what I'm sending you now I mean this is certainly something which I think we have a right to disbelieve in and if it is true that God is that way, then he owes us evidence because he owes us some evidentiary proof before sending us to the Pacific Coast Highway to the road to Damascus and have it big as I drive up here now to a big sunlight or river here and say, hey, why dost thou reject me? Come unto me. Something which to me would give me the same inner experience as Dr. Craig. So why does God single Dr. Craig out for those inner experiences but leaves me out of it? Why is he partisan to Dr. Craig and not to me? I want those experiences. I challenge him. God, listen to me. Show yourself. If not, I won't believe in you. Simple. People would be a little bit more quiet, a little bit more respectful of the speakers. Question for Mr. Thomas. Yes, question for uh, Mr. Thomas. A, we were in Atlanta. uh, I heard it in the debate. Dr. Bradkamp is Dr. Peter Atkins, a physical chemist from England. And the question was posed to Dr. Atkins as to what explanation did he give for the disciples coming up with the story of the resurrection since they were in the center? And the best thing you can come up with was that the disciple of the Lord lived out in the desert and the Lord. If you, if you haven't yet given an explanation as to why the disciples came up, or where this, uh story of the resurrection came from, you can answer that question? First of all, the idea of resurrection was always floating around. Now even though the Jews thought of the resurrection at the end of time, and they didn't think of some individual Messiah resurrecting the mythology for a template basis, of that was always there. Secondly, you cannot argue that just because people come up with a new mythology, in an already superstitious age, that that means that something has to be true. So if you have people believing in reincarnation, and then the next day they say, you know what, rather than reincarnation after death, we all go to a planet made of green cheese, that doesn't mean that it's true. And the fact that people make a paradigm shift is evidence of the supernatural. And I'm saying on the principle of conservatism, the explanation which is the most reasonable, there are other more rational and logical and provable explanations than to say the supernatural. And again, if Dr. Craig was at the LA airport tomorrow dancing Hare Krishna, that would be such a paradigm shift for him, that does mean that the Hare Krishna religion is true. When you have a paradigm shift like this, the historian is obligated to provide some explanation for why this occurred. And any presently missed any explanation of why this group of men, broken, dispirited, crushed by the crucifixion of Jesus, which under Old Testament teaching showed this man out to be a heretic, it meant that he could not have been Messiah if they had entertained such hopes. Why this band of men should suddenly such an unchristian that is that God raising them again, such that they will be willing to put a tortuous dance for this. Now, I just ask, what is the explanation for this, along with these detuned the and post-mortem appearances? Historian has to provide something, and I think the best explanation is: these men were telling the truth. Why am I telling you Do you have a question for Dr. Craig? I have a question for both parties, and it looks who is up and answer first. I would like to use the comment following. Uh, Recently, physicists have discovered there is enough dark matter in the universe to pull the universe back in after it expands, and an ever expanding (coughs) and the universe so that there are lots of big bangs all through time. The time is, there was never a beginning, there was one big thing, and it was just always there. There's always been matter, there always will be matter, ever expanding and contracting. And how does that fit into each of your have uh, time? What you described is the oscillating model of the universe, and I think that your information is basically out of date here. I have here uh, a big news release from January 9th of uh, last year. Uh, which indicates that five teams of astronomers uh, at uh, Princeton, Harvard, Lawrence Berkeley, National Laboratory, and so forth, have determined that the universe is not dense enough for it to the track. In fact, the expansion is actually accelerating, according to an article I have here, just from February 10th, oh, January 10th, uh, January 10th, it says that this about destroys the idea that there could be a way for the universe to come back together into a way crunch. So that this old oscillating model system will work as cosmologically And observation and not terrible. There was an absolute beginning. And you've got to explain why did that occur where did the universe come from. Well, whether or not the uh, universal accordion expands on the is not only the issue. The issue is that there was a beginning, and the Big Bang was beginning. You cannot infuse our understanding of cause and effect in time and space to an event before time and space. That is to say, the universe was different years ago. There wasn't a 16 million years ago. There was no time before time at which a causal event could take place. And also, if God is an immaterial entity, how does God reach out from immateriality Again, Dr. Craig says his mind which is immaterial can name his arm race. Dr. Craig's mind works through a platform of a physical brain. There is no physical frame or medium from which God to work through. So therefore, the concept of a supernatural cause of the beginning of time and space is pure speculation without any justification. Question. Mr. Cowells, uh, if you had grant uh, the suffering that uh, other through in Auschwitz was something that should not have happened, then you would be implying that there is a way that things ought to be. But without God, how would you define the way things ought to be or the design that things ought to be? See, I don't need recourse to the supernatural being. To look upon the scenes in Auschwitz and say this shouldn't happen. I don't need recourse to a supernatural being to say that the Serbian militiamen should not shoot down uh, innocent women and children in Boston. I don't need recourse to a supernatural being to say that the serial killer should not kill his victims. I don't need recourse to a supernatural being to say that two and two is four. I don't need recourse to a supernatural being to say I should not drive 150 miles down Pacific Coast Highway. The impact, the evidence of our senses, and the empirical knowledge we derive from living is our God. But I don't need a supernatural God to say, by the way, in my absence, how much shouldn't have happened when it was that supernatural God that He's all-powerful to let it happen. Well, again, just doesn't understand the argument. Uh, the point isn't that you need God to learn what is objective rather on, it is that you need God as a foundation for moral values, otherwise everything becomes relative, socio-culturally relative. And there's no basis for affirming the value of human beings. Think of my example of the aliens from outer space coming I and looking at us so the way we look at pigs and cows. Why think human beings are essentially valuable and atheistic view? The argument that the student desk is actually a very good way. It's an argument for God for evil. It goes like this. Evil is that which ought not to be, by definition. But if there is a way that the universe ought to be, that implies there is a design plan for the universe. But if there is a design plan for the universe, there must be a designer of the universe. And thus again, from the very concept of evil as that which ought not to be, so there must be a designer of the universe. We have time for one more question for each of the participants. Uh, there will be. If, if you have questions that you would like to ask, there will be a reception immediately following this. Um, so, one more question for each. Hey, I'm a survivor all from Belgium. And uh, I want everybody to know that all the Nazis who are great professionals have gotten to the tools on their law profits. I mean, they are he speaks more slowly, and speaks I, I want everybody to know that the Nazis were very Christians, and people that were Catholic, and I hope that was community, by the way, and, and they followed the Christian gods the and the Christian religion, and they mastered the murder of 6 million, or innocent, or 24 million, and they were not children. I finally knew that. I was a lecture on my civil rights. How do you explain the silence of the gods, or all the gods, by the way? Well, in the first place, Hitler and the Nazi soldiers and carried out this atrocity are not Christians. Uh, they claimed to be members of churches. Being a member of the church doesn't make you a Christian. That, that is not what it means to be a Christian. Jesus would not have been a dark chamber. So I'm defending what Jesus stood and taught for, not what religious hypocrites who claim to be as followers of China. But with respect to the Holocaust, I think God had more or less sufficient reasons for committing that atrocity. Uh, for example, I don't know this, but perhaps the Holocaust was the means by which the founding of the modern nation of Israel was brought about. Through such an extraordinary atrocity, the world returned to the Jews, their ancient homeland, and the Marxism God has ways of Israel to bless the entire world that lies in the, the future. We simply have no way of knowing uh, what could, might ultimately, come out of this terrible evil, so that I think God has more sufficient reasons for the evil. And there's no way to disprove that as long as it's possible in the promises of a new Well, it's interesting that Dr. Craig Scott is a derogated efficient being, because of the only way to bring about the politics in Israel, despite having six really Jews to get sacrificed, I think that God needs to take a course in efficiency. We talk about morally sufficient reasons. Is there a morally sufficient reason for law? Is there a morally sufficient reason for the three-year-old child getting a bullet in the head? Is there a morally sufficient reason for uh, any of these things that happen? And also, is there a morally sufficient reason for were gays to be put to death just because they love each other? Are we going to now say that because the Bible is a repository of morality that we're going to go to West Hollywood and take two innocent gay men who happen to be engaged in physical law and execute them? If you believe in the Bible God, that's exactly what has to happen. So if we are going to